The story of Aaron Ralston is one of the most extraordinary survival stories that I think any of us have ever heard. It's since been made into a movie. The title of the movie is 127 Hours. For those of you who are not familiar or don't remember uh, Aaron Ralston and his story, his story gained national attention back in 2003. In April of that year, Aaron took a hike by himself without telling anyone where he was going into the Blue Ridge Canyon, or excuse me, Blue John Canyon of southern Utah. And as he hiked through these canyon formations, through these rock formations, he descended a three-foot-wide section, and one of the rocks suddenly shifted. And before he could react, an 800-pound boulder pinned his hand to the wall of the canyon. Six days passed. He ran out of water. The shorts and the t-shirt that he wore were no match for the, the cool desert nights that he was experiencing, and so hypothermia was setting in, and so Aaron had to make a decision. Would he die here in the canyon because of his pinned hand, or was there a way to live? There was but it required the unthinkable. And so Aaron did what we all wonder whether we could ever do. Using an old pocket knife from his pocket, he amputated his own hand in order to get loose. Hiking out of the canyon, bleeding and exhausted, Aaron was eventually found, and he amazingly survived this ordeal. It's an absolutely amazing, true story. And it's a story that is a perfect real-life illustration of this passage that we have before us this morning. No, Jesus is not saying to literally cut your hands off. But he is saying this. Your desire to live must be greater than your desire to keep a hand. Let me explain what I mean by that. Using, I think, three points, three truths that we can learn and meditate on from this passage. And the first one is this. Your sin, our sin, my sin is a serious problem. Your sin is a serious problem. As we pick up where we left off last week, as we work our way through this book, do you remember the scene? Those of you who were here, let me remind you, the disciples had previous to this failed to fully depend on Jesus as they tried to cast out a demon from a boy. And they walk away from that, and when they got to Capernaum, Jesus unearthed their conversation along the way. It was a conversation about who was the greatest among them. It's a conversation that will appear again, and we unpack that last week in our time together. In other words, the disciples' focus most recently has been where? It's been on themselves. 
It's been on themselves, and and that in some way continues this morning as we pick up in verse 38, and this is the only time in Mark's gospel that we actually hear John speak, and John speaks to Jesus concerned about what others are doing in the name of Jesus, and Jesus' response with all that has gone on with his disciples prior to this is Don't be concerned so much, John, about what others are doing. God will judge. God will reward. What you need to focus on, what all of you need to focus on, is your task and yourselves, your own hearts. And so really in this passage, what Jesus does is he turns to the war that is going on in each of his disciples' hearts and the war that we wage ourselves this morning. And I want you to notice who he's talking to. He's talking to his disciples, to those who had followed him, to those who trusted him, to those who had bought into all that he was about. This is not them out there. This is us. Those who love him and follow him. Sin is our problem. And it's a problem that manifests itself in physical dimensions. Yes, Jesus is concerned about our hearts. It's much more than just what we do, what we say. But it's out of that overflow of the heart that we think, we speak, we act. And so it's our hands that slam down on that steering wheel in anger. It's our fingers that we use to click that mouse and go to that website that we ought not be on. It's our feet that take us to our friends so that we can gossip about other friends. It's our eyes that covet our neighbor's possessions. It's our eyes that roll in an attitude of superiority to others around us. So Jesus asks all of us, are you conscious of your sin, disciple? Are you sensitive to its presence? Are you concerned that it's there? J.C. Ryle, that old Puritan, wrote in his excellent work, Holiness, he begins it with this sentence, he that wishes to attain right views about holiness, Christian holiness, must begin by examining the vast and solemn subject of sin. He must dig down very low if he would build high. And that's what Jesus does this morning. Jesus reminds us that there is sin in our lives, that it's a serious problem that it needs to be dealt with. And Jesus' words here, lest we think too lightly about our sin, Jesus goes on and, and takes it to the next level where he speaks of the consequences of sin left unchecked and unrepented of. It's one of the most sobering accounts of Jesus' words as Jesus speaks of hell awaiting those who refuse to deal with their sin. I mean, this is serious stuff, sobering stuff. Three times he uses the word hell, literally the word he uses, and you can see it in your footnotes if you have an ESV Bible. The little word is Gehenna. 
Gehenna was a valley outside of Jerusalem that became infamous back in the days of Ahaz. In 2 Kings 16, because it was there that in defiance to God's law, children were sacrificed to the false god Molech. Despicable practice. And so when King Josiah, a good king of God's people, when he came on the throne, he declared that place unclean. And as a result, it became, appropriately so, the garbage dump of Jerusalem. It's a disgusting, awful place of decay and and torment. And Jesus puts this picture in his disciples' minds, in his hearers' minds. And he's not speaking of that dump in particular. He's speaking of the place where the fires never go out, where the worms never stop eating. And that place is the eternal reality of hell. Many years ago, there was a campaign that our local giant corporation, Starbucks, went about. It was a series called The Way I See It, and they would put these quotes on their cups. Many of you remember this. There was a quote years ago on one of the cups at Starbucks by Bishop Carlton Pearson. I don't know anything about him, but he's labeled as an author, a speaker, a spiritual leader, And he says this, in reality, hell is not such an intention of God as it is an invention of man. God is love. People are precious. Authentic truth is not so much taught or learned as it is remembered. Somewhere is your pre-incarnate consciousness, somewhere in your pre-incarnate consciousness you were loved And loved absolutely because you were. And in reality, you still are. Remember who you are. Now, besides that quote just being downright weird and confusing, it's wrong. It's not the truth. And yet, it emanates the consciousness of our day the prominent opinion of our day. Jesus, our Jesus, is often characterized as one who promoted tolerance, not who preached truth. One who preached love in the place of hell, it is said. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus talked a lot about judgment. Jesus talked a lot about the reality of hell. And Jesus talked about these things because of his love. Hell is real. And Jesus wants us to know this, that we might recognize the reality of our sin. And that the way we view our sin would be changed. This is where our sin being a serious problem brings us face to face, thankfully, with the gospel. Right? We think about the severity of our sin as we think about Jesus' words of the reality of hell, and we think about the violence of that cross and what it took to rescue us, and we say, Thank you. The old hymn we sing, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. 
It proclaims this very truth. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. As we read earlier, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and yet God has sent a satisfying Savior for us. And Jesus took that wrath. Jesus took that punishment. Jesus took the severity that we might not have to deal with it. Sin is a serious problem, but you have been given a great Savior. That's the first thing I want us to focus our hearts on this morning. The second is this. Your sin requires drastic measures. Your sin requires drastic measures. We hear this phrase a lot. Let me give you three recent news headlines I found this week. Athletes take drastic measures to protect themselves from Zika. Trenton Mayor to take drastic measures against violence in his city. Dolphins, that is the Miami variety, dolphins may need to take drastic measures to fix their offense. You see, each headline carries with it this sense of urgency, this sense of intentionality, this sense of radical action needed to combat whatever problem we've been faced with. Jesus, in reminding his disciples of the problem of their sin and the severity of the consequences of that sin, if it remains unchecked, now reminds them how to deal with it. Simply put, it must be killed. And so he says, if it's your hand, cut it off. If it's your foot, cut it off. If it's your eye, tear it out. Now, Jesus' point is clear, at least it ought to be. It's not literally do these things. It's that sin is not something to be played with. We, we think we can handle things, that it's no big deal. We think we can dilly-dally here. We think we can dilly-dally there. We think we are going to master our sin, and yet so often our sin ends up mastering us. And Jesus says, don't play around. Deal with it definitively, decisively. And the language of the New Testament, the language of the rest of the Bible is no different. Romans 8, 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Galatians 5, 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, put to death what is earthly in you, Colossians 3 says. Death, crucifixion, death. We need to hear this because we too often and too easily treat our sin casually. And I think even in the familiarity of this passage and the hyperbole with which Jesus speaks, some of us can take Jesus' words and we can overly dismiss the hyperbole. Like, oh, he's not meaning that literally. And so we can almost minimize it too much. Don't miss the force of Jesus' words. Your sin requires drastic measures. 
Don't wait till next week until you have time to draw up a plan. Don't wait till tomorrow. Deal with it today. And what that looks like in your life, I don't know. I was reading this book in another book. I was reading this week in another book about our union with Christ and about what that means to be united to Christ. And speaking of sin, the writer gave this definition. Sin is abiding in something other than Jesus to give us significance and joy. Let the Holy Spirit take those words and and churn them a bit in your minds and in your hearts. What, What areas need to be dealt with? How are you spending your time? What are you reading, watching? Browsing online, how are you treating your spouse, your siblings? What did you say to that coworker in that conversation? Certainly, I hope that the Holy Spirit brings to mind things that you say, yes, I repent of those. I, I need to deal with those with decisive action, but we also must keep in mind uh, the deceitfulness of sin. We've got to pray. Lord, I know sin is a serious problem. I know sin requires drastic measures. So show me my sin that I might deal with it rightly. It's a sobering passage indeed. But don't let it be a discouraging passage because you can also rejoice You can rejoice that hidden in Christ, if your life is in him, you don't face the consequences. Even of that indwelling sin that you're battling, you're free from its punishment. But get rid of it with all the might that you can muster, with all the grace of God that you can pray down. Sin requires drastic measures. Well, there's one final truth I want us to look at for a moment comes from the final two verses. Let me read them. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Here's the point. You've heard this before. You are the salt of the earth. You, Christian, you, church of Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. Now, Jesus talks about salt elsewhere, even makes that statement elsewhere. But he brings up salt here in kind of a cryptic form. It's only found here in Mark's gospel. He says, everyone will be salted with fire. It's maybe not the first thing that we think of, but salt speaks in some way of sacrifice. Not in our culture per se, but in the culture that Jesus spoke to. Leviticus 2.13 says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. For all your offerings you shall offer salt. So in other words, in a theme that Paul will pick up later in Romans chapter 12, we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. And that's in part the reason we're called to deal with our sin. 
is because our lives of holiness are an act of worship to our God. And not only that, they're an instrument that God uses for the world around us. And so the salt that Jesus speaks of here has two purposes. First, to purify and then to preserve. First, purifying. Sacrifices were, of course, salted and then burned. And if you're a believer, you will be purified. Malachi speaks of a refiner's fire. And that's why Jesus here speaks of a decisive cutting off of sin. And as we're seasoned in this way, well, the reason for the seasoning becomes clear because salt in the ancient world was not only to bring about flavor, it was to preserve. And the impure salt of Jesus' day could lose its saltiness. That doesn't happen in our experience, but salt could become useless. And Jesus says, don't let your saltiness go away. You're the salt of the earth. You're to be holy unto the Lord. You need to be different. You need to put to death your sin. You need to stop quarreling about who the best is and humble yourselves. You need to be like this little child that I still have in my midst. That through all of those actions, through all of that life, you might proclaim that the difference in my life is Christ. It's Jesus. It's the gospel. Aaron Ralston, in that canyon, pinned to the canyon wall, he desperately wanted to live, and he was willing to do whatever it took in order to live. The question for us is not all that different, but it's so much more serious. Do we love life, true life? Life in Christ the lives we were meant to live and be? Do we love true life more than we love our sin? That's the challenge before us. And by God's grace, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, standing on his broad shoulders, we can recognize our sin problem. We can take drastic measures to deal with it. And we can be the salt of the earth for his glory. Let's pray. Great Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that we find here. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, that you would shine your light in those dark corners of our lives of our hearts, revealing those blind spots that we have, even use one another, use the body of Christ as we speak the truth in love to one another. May we receive, may be given in gentleness and in genuine love and may may it be received with the spirit in which it is given. Father, we desire to be holy as you are holy. We are thankful 
that you love us well before we've arrived to that point. But while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, Father, give us grace to now be the salt you desire in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.